Well, you are going in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. As you know, we've been in a series in the Psalms. I've been looking for excuses to preach them and excuses to sing them. And as it turns out, a a sermon series to that end has served us well for that. And uh, singing the Psalms together, as I was reminded last night, that uh, the blessings abound and God has given us songs to sing. And and you've, you've heard me say this before. I'm going to say it again. These songs right in the middle of your Bible cover the whole range of experiences and additionally a great deal of our responses to the experiences right not, not just the experiences but how we respond to experiences think about it this way this this book this Psalter this book of Psalms in the middle of your Bible God could have given us 150 variations of life is hard and God is good And that that could have just been it. Just 150 variations on life is hard and God is good. Or 150 variations on God is good all the time. And so the result would be that every time we encountered trial, hardship, affliction, the constant orientation, if you like, of the entire church would be, well, life is hard, but God is good. I'm going to put on my fake smile and we'll, we'll get through this. And some of you are thinking, wait, that's not how I'm supposed to handle affliction? (laughs) No, it is not. The reason why Psalm 22 is in there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is because there are days where fake smile, life is hard but God is good, just won't cut it. To speak in that way, in those moments, I I don't think it's too far to say, would, would be to engage in a kind of dishonesty about your present circumstances. I'm not saying it would be dishonest to say the words, life is hard and God is good. I'm not saying it would be dishonest to say God is good all the time. Both of those things are true every day of the week and twice on Sunday. I am saying God has given to you, Christian, many more uh, uh, words and many more dispositions and orientations of the heart that are lawful because they're right there in the Psalms. God has given you a richer liturgy to speak, if you like. A richer liturgy to speak than uh, the seven-word liturgy, life is hard but God is good, or the six-word liturgy, God is good all the time. And what that should tell us is He's given us words for every sort of day, including the day when our spirit has seen and has known a great deal of trouble. Psalm 46 is for days of trouble. It's a psalm for preaching to yourself. We've talked about that before, haven't we? The art of preaching to yourself. And this psalm is rather famously Martin Luther's favorite one. He, um, it's uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the, the hymn so many of you know so well, is based on Psalm 46. Uh, I, I would say probably Luther's second favorite was Psalm 130, which we sang a moment ago for our song of confession. That was also from Martin Luther, that setting of it. Not the tune, but the, the, the text is from Luther. And so, does anyone remember, we'll do a little pop quiz here, do you remember what Luther would say when his friend Philip Melanchthon would get anxious? We talked about this. Anybody remember the, the quote? Let Philip cease to rule the world, right? When he would see anxiety creeping up on his friend Philip, he'd just put a hand on his shoulder and say, let Philip cease to rule the world. I recently learned, though, additionally, that when things were looking really bad, Another thing Luther would say to Philip is, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. (laughs) 
right? Isn't that great? I'm not making that up. He's, he would look at them and say, okay, things are bad. It's time to sing the 46th Psalm. So why don't we go ahead and read it? Huh? To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh of the armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends, to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. This is the word of the Lord. And again, together we say, thanks be to God. Throughout the Bible, God uses a number of, of uh, different kinds of metaphors to communicate who He is to us. What we find here is the metaphor of a refuge, or a word you probably didn't know until you started seeing a mighty fortress, a bulwark. There's a fun word, right? It's almost so good it can distract you, right? You start singing, I wonder what a bulwark is. It is a, it's a refuge. It's a, a strong tower, place of refuge, place of retreat, place of safety. So God is our refuge, our strong castle, if you like. Or maybe a more sort of modern analogy would be our bunker beneath the ground when the nuclear blast hits. Refuge. And not only that, He's our refuge when the world falls apart. Look at the text. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. Plenty of Psalms talk about how God's going to be a future help. This one talks about how He's a present help in times of in, in trouble. Therefore, based on that knowledge, based on that reality that God is our refuge and strength, we will not fear. And then basically what the psalmist does is he thinks of the most terrifying situation he can. I'm just going to reach up and grab for the most terrifying situation I can manage. So, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We will not be afraid, but apparently the mountains are terrified. So this God is our refuge when the world is collapsing and falling apart. I ask you, dear saints, is that relevant? Probably, yeah. And notice, I want you to notice something. The header says this psalm is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Many of you who are participating in the To the Word Bible reading plan, if you are, uh, you've just got finished with the book of Numbers, and right now you're in the midst of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Numbers, you might recall, there is this fellow named Korah who rebels against Moses and several other Levites with him. Um, scholars are not unified, probably some of his sons, but certainly not all of them. They rebel against Moses basically saying, you're a liar, 
you're a chump, and you've got us out here in the middle of nowhere, and we're going to pack our things, grab our friends and our wives and our little ones, and we're going to go back to Egypt. Moses' answer is, attention Israel, step away from their tents, which had to be a little chilling, probably a bit unsettling. And then what happens? You go to the Numbers text. Yeah. As soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol. That's the place of death. And the earth closed over them. They perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. So they got swallowed up. Korah and his followers, likely some of his sons, but not all of them. Some of them remained. Some of them watched their father perish. Some of them passed on that story from generation to generation until later the remaining sons of Korah have been given a job to write music for the people of God and they sing even if the earth be moved and threatens to swallow us up just like it did our forefather. We will not be troubled for He is our refuge. Look at verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The next part probably seems kind of strange to you because, I mean, it seems strange to me. We go from this intense apocalyptic scene, mountains crumbling, dissolving into the sea like something from a thriller movie, uh, seas raging, and then suddenly... You know, there's a river. There's a river. (laughs) Uh, What does that have to do with anything? Why do we just jump from the world is crumbling to just for your information, there's a lovely stream trickling through Jerusalem? Well, first, I want you to notice the contrast. We move from terrifying oceans roaring to a clean stream flowing. John Calvin comments on this verse. He says, the city of God doesn't have a tumultuous sea. It has a little river. So it is within the walls of the church today. And hopefully you catch that this river language is a metaphor. If a river is flowing through your city, it means you have access to clean water. Unless the river's red, but never mind. If there's a river flowing through your city, it means that even if there's lots of insanity and death outside the walls, there can still be life and flourishing inside but more than that we learn we we get a second metaphor here we started with god is our refuge right our stronghold and now we come to there is a river in the middle of the city followed by verse five god is in the middle god is in the midst of her she shall not be moved god is in the middle of the city the river is in the middle of the city the river is a metaphor for god and this should not surprise us Life-giving water is one of God's favorite metaphors for Himself. In Jeremiah 2.13, if we can go there, please. Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, God says, the fountain of living waters, 
and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water, a rather chilling picture of idolatry. They've got, they've got dry wells as opposed to the living water. So, so, so God the Father is our living water. Zechariah 13.1, God the Son is our living water. The prophet Zechariah, looking forward to the coming of Christ, says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. God the Father is our living water. God the Son is our living water, our fountain. And God the Holy Spirit is our living water. Go to the next one, please. John chapter 7. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit take on this this picture, this metaphor. Ezekiel, by the way, also uses this same kind of language. We, We stopped our Ezekiel series long before we got to chapter 47. Someday we'll pick it up again. But in Ezekiel 47, the prophet sees the heavenly temple with water flowing out of it. And the water starts as a trickle, then the trickle becomes a stream, and then the stream becomes a river until there's just gallons and gallons of water flowing out of this temple, and it eventually floods the world. Mm. Not to drown as in Noah's day, but to give life and flourishing. Do I have to make the gospel connection? I'm pretty sure you see it. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ means for His church to be. The Lord Jesus is building His church and He's given to her the living water of the Gospel. And He means for the water to come bursting out of our kitchen windows, out of our front doors, out of our sanctuaries and fellowship halls until the whole neighborhood is swimming in the praises and blessings of God Almighty. Dear saints, this is why we need not be afraid. The whole point of Psalm 46. We will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. Life itself originating in the midst of the people of God, flowing out to the nations. So what's, what's going on here is that God is establishing us in this psalm, establishing His people and establishing peace in their hearts in the midst of all the tumult in verses 1 and 2 and 3. But look at verses 6 and 7 with me. The nations rage. So again, this is outside the walls. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. What an image. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh of the armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That gets repeated down at the bottom. You might have heard me as we read through the text. I read the the Selahs, which I usually don't do. But what I noticed is that it actually breaks it perfectly into like three parts. The the first part being God is our refuge. The second part being the, uh, uh, the living water within the city. And then the third part being Come and behold the works of the Lord. Come and look what He does to the nations. We'll we'll get there in a moment. But this language, verses 6 and 7, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. That sounds a bit, I mean, you should hear some Psalm 2 echoes there, right? Uh, About about, uh, God dealing with the nations, breaking them as with a rod of iron. The, The picture, again, is of heathens raging outside the walls, God's people inside the walls. And interestingly, these words that are translated rage and totter, are the same Hebrew words in verse 3, where the waters are roaring or raging, 
and the mountains are trembling or tottering. Okay? It gets handled in English differently, but it's the same word, both, same two words both times in Hebrew. So whether this roaring and raging and tottering and trembling is, is geological in nature or political national in nature, God is still the refuge both times. Which I reckon is pretty good news. Right? For people that live under the, uh, under the shadow of when's our next hurricane... This is, this is great encouragement. For the people who live under Louisiana politics, <laughs> this is great encouragement. <laughs> you can see why this is such an important psalm, I hope. The reason why we need a psalm like this is because, let's be honest, the world is really good at scaring us. Okay? Your, your news channels, which for the sake of your spirit you should turn off, are really good at scaring you, really good at wearing you out, really good at exhausting you so that you have no energy left to invest in things can be good and true and beautiful. That's a different sermon, sorry. That's not in my notes. That one was free. Verse 8, Come behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, He shatters the spear, He burns the chariots with fire. He makes wars cease. Is that not good news? Our God has prepared a day for all of us when the means of war, the techniques of war, the weapons of war will no longer be useful or practical. Chariots and swords and cannons and guns and missiles and tanks will be burned up and dissolved. And Sun Tzu will finally go out of print because who needs to know the art of war? When God brings shalom on the earth. But don't let this escape your notice, beloved. God brings peace by declaring war. Don't miss that. Come behold the works of the Lord. He has brought desolations on the earth. I don't think there's a nice way to translate that word. He makes wars cease. Why? Because He's the one bringing the desolation. What does desolation mean? It means destruction of the enemies of God. You see, when Jesus makes claims of kingship, He actually means it. So I I ask you, I wonder if any of you can remind me, how is Christ your King? How is Christ your King today? I'll give you a hint. It starts with Christ rules. Does anyone just want to shout it out? No? Okay. It's okay, I'm putting our little ones on the spot here and I didn't prepare them for it. A better pastor would have. I wonder if you know it, if you know it from the children's catechism, if you'll say it with me. How is Christ your king? Christ rules over me, the world, and Satan, and he defends me. Part of how he does all that is he means to make war a thing of the past. In the course of history, God's going to make war obsolete. And according to Psalm 46, He's going to do it by the strength of His hand. Now some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, look, I thought Jesus was the suffering servant. I thought He was the meek and lowly lamb. This sounds, I don't know, a bit more aggressive. Yes, you are correct. Jesus Christ, by His humiliation and death on the cross, conquered sin and death. He was raised from the dead for your justification. The very thing we get all excited about on Reformation Sunday. And that is how God conquered you. 
Stay with me. That is how God conquered you. Your sin, your rebellion, your hatred of God, your desire to be the God and judge of your own life. In about 33 A.D. And about 40 years later, in 70 A.D., Jesus Christ, the King of Righteousness, absolutely leveled the city of Jerusalem to the ground. It's both. That's the point. He said He would do it in Matthew 24. And about 40 years after His resurrection, there was not one stone left upon another. So it's not, I have to choose between meek and gentle Jesus or mighty sword-brandishing warrior of Revelation. He is both. I recall one author observing that in Islam, God governs all the world by brute force. Allah is a warrior and you must submit. We might say that liberal Christianity, on the other hand, has this kind of polar opposite deal where God has saved all the world by by meekness, mercy, and softness. The cross means everybody just gets transformed. Biblical Christianity says God is both a warrior and a lamb. God conquers your sin by the cross. Meanwhile, there are men who remain in their rebellion and hatred of God. Their rebellion against God by keeping a respectable distance from Him, by mocking chastity, by mocking marriage, by mocking modesty, by mocking sin. They are declaring war on God. And God will deal with them in His time, either by humbling them at the cross or by destroying them, because He makes wars cease by destroying wars. Do you get it? Those who declare war on Him without repentance will be brought low by the one who puts all the wars down, including the ones declared against Him. You see why it's kind of important that we sing this stuff? Because, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we sing that doesn't cover this. My hope and desire for you, Grace Presbyterian Church, is that you would be a people who refuse to apologize for one single verse in this book. But you take all of it and you just say, Amen, Lord. I believe it. I rejoice in it. Help my unbelief and anything in my spirit that tends to resist rejoicing in it. The psalm concludes with this. Be still and know that I am God. All the the tumult and raging, you get kind of where, where that comes in at the end, why that's so important. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of the armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, this one, verse 10, be still to know that I am God. That one gets quoted a lot, doesn't it? You know, uh, T-shirts and coffee mugs and the like. And I think, I think it's because it's been a help to so many saints through the centuries. Many times, though, I think sometimes, just if we are not careful in our reading, we can just read this as a sort of call to, to meditation. So, so find a quiet room and be still and know that I am God. Go and find a quiet place until you feel relieved. But... But think of all that's been on display in this psalm. Mountains crumbling, God is our refuge. Heathens raging, God brings us living water inside the city. Wars rising up, and they're being put down and snuffed out by the ones who burns chariots with an all-consuming fire. 
This God is unstoppable. That's the point. Our God is unthreatened, untroubled, and that God is for you, Christian. And is that not the thing you need when anxiety takes hold of your heart and fear comes ripping through your soul without mercy? You forget that God is God. You momentarily believe that you are God. That's why you're so anxious. <laughs> that Actually, that's quite the job description and you are utterly unqualified for the job of being God. So it's a very understandable anxiety, amen? And so just like Jesus Christ in the midst of the storm who speaks peace be still and the raging waters fall down to stillness before their master, so He speaks the same word to you when the mountains of stability crumble, if you like, the waters of your heart rage, be still and be reminded that I am God. Not you. This is our refuge and our strength. Luther here is very helpful. We sing this psalm, that is Psalm 46, to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends His church and His Word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. Your heart can only be still if you know that in the midst of all of the mess of Psalm 46 that your God is for you. And this is what the cross gives you, by the way. The cross gives you a God who is for you. You cannot look at the cross of Jesus where the Son of God bore all your sin and say, maybe God isn't for me. Now, I mean, you you can't even say God has forsaken me. You can feel that way and you often will. And you can express it with Psalm 22 where He still remains my God, my God, right? But Jesus, when He cried out with those very words, if you want to think of it this way, has already drank the cup of forsakenness for you. Jesus Christ again calls all who will hear to repentance. To repent of trying to build your own refuge. To be God. To refuse to be still, but rather to be frantic and then wonder why you're miserable. He makes wars cease. So will you? Will you cease from your rebellion? Which, by the way, for most, like, most respectable American religious people, rebellion is not usually uh, getting on the internet and posting a bunch of stuff about atheism. Most respectable sorts of rebellion against God is just living as though He doesn't exist. Living as though He doesn't matter. Living as though He's irrelevant. Living as though He hasn't spoken. So will you cease? From your rebellion. Will you, as it were, cross the battle line? Will you betray the kingdom of self and sin and come running into the refuge while there is still yet time for you? There is a river flowing through the new Jerusalem. There is fresh water flowing through the church. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father, we ask indeed that you would Give us faith that you'd put on our lips that you're our refuge and our strength, a very present help, that we might say to the nations, come and behold the works of the Lord. Grant us, Lord, to be the ones who are still, 
and know that you are God. The ones who, when, as it were, the sky darkens, the mountains crumble into the sea, we say the Lord, is, the Lord of hosts is with us and the God of Jacob is our fortress. Father, we need grace for this. We need help for this. We need strength for this. We need encouragement for this. So we ask for it now that you would meet us here at your table and feed us with what we need most, namely more, of our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.